Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Once upon a time, the Headstones were the scariest band in Canadian music. They scared audiences, they scared record companies, hell, they even scared themselves. There were other words to describe them. Intense, self-destructive, high energy. But I think the word the group liked the most was furious. Here's singer Hugh Dillon. And our yeah. band's so unique yeah. and it's so unpredictable and so ferocious. There is a you get a high from playing in it because yeah. when it's on, it's like a totally. you know, I grew up playing hockey. This is like a hockey team. When it's on, it's like that. It's uh yeah. Doug Gilmore and I lived on the same street. We play one on one on the swamp at the end of our street every f- night. And I played hockey with like our manager Bernie was the goalie, Paul Langwell was the right winger. I was always the defenseman. The co- cops were our coaches who'd leave their guns in the dressing room in the mornings <laughs> at the Harold Harvey rink in Kingston. And this band has that thing that is just when it's on, the guns are blazing. And what really to me is fascinating uh, is really how great they are as musicians, like their their songwriting capability yeah well that doesn't even begin to tell the story of the headstones strap in this is a good one it's the headstones in their own words part one this is the ongoing history of new music podcast with alan cross The Headstones from their 2019 album, People Skills, and that's called Leave It All Behind. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is another edition of an In Their Own Words program. This is where I get a band into the studio and have them tell their own story unvarnished and unfiltered. And I finally managed to round up Hugh Dillon, Trent Carr, and Tim White for some time in the studio. And uh, boy, did they have some stories to tell. The only place to start is at the beginning. So here we go. Let's start from the very beginning. So how the Headstones come out of Kingston? What year are we talking about? 89. No, you came from Kingston earlier than that. It was like 80s. Well, I can I can go back. I mean, I I you know, chronologically here's exactly what happened. I remember being 18 and uh, you know, I, I grew up in Kingston with David Usher and the guys in the hip. We all went to the same high school. And I struggled with, you know, reading and writing and math and was drawn to rock and roll music. And, you know, I was a latchkey kid, so I just loved TV and movies and rock and roll music. I was a huge Bob Dylan fan because my brothers and sisters were 15 years older, so I inherited their take on it and I got involved with um, you know I was involved with drugs and uh, and then I got involved in you know selling drugs and all of those things and at an early age I was lucky because even the guys in the hip were always very kind and I remember being um, you know selling LSD to Gord Downey and I was Gord Downey's uh, light guy at the first high school um, dance where his band called The Slinks um, performed and I was going this is great I'm a light guy Gordy's great and then he packed it in with that band and I joined as the singer and that lasted a little while and then I 
you know, after just out of high school, I was going to Queens University. And, but my day, I couldn't handle a day job because I hated working for people and I just couldn't, I didn't have the social skills to deal with other people's bullshit. And I was selling drugs, all sorts of different things, and cocaine, and I loved Teenage Head. And I'd go to a place called The Manor, and me and Gordani would go to places downtown in Kingston and watch old blues acts like um, Luther Guitar Johnson would play at the Prince George and Gordon and I would go and wait for him backstage and talk to him and he'd always ask us if we had weed and we always did so he would take us to the the, the girls bathroom where his 300 pound drummer Ola May would that was her dressing room so she could lock the door and we could smoke pot and you know so it's me Gordon this great old bluesman and then on the uh, on the you know other days I'd go to a place called the Manor, which was like uh, hosers and tough and just a brutal place. But Teenage Head would play, and I was in heaven because I thought whatever this kind of music is, is magic. And uh, Frankie came out one day and you know was looking for blow and <laughs> yeah, this is a guy from T, and I was eighteen. And then I my drug career blew up in my face. And uh, my mom had me sign a thing that said, you know, this, first of all, they said... Wait, you know, what, what do you mean your, your drug career blew up in your face? What I exactly was going happened? to Ottawa and I was scoring for an 18-year-old kid. I was scoring 10 pounds of dope at a time and bringing it back to Kingston, selling it to people at university and other places. And I was in deep with a lot of people who, you know, um, I was from a prison town. This is the way I was going to go. Some people, uh, you know, that was the way it was looking for me. And, but I had these aspirations. I loved rock and roll. I didn't know how I'd get there, and I loved movies. And uh, just hustling, you know? It's a hustle, you know? And, um, and Frankie was awesome, and I loved this band. They were magic. That was a peak port. And later on, that was something Trent and I bonded about, was that band, and to this day. And, um, yeah, and then it blew up in my face, and I'd gotten in trouble. I was in trouble with the law and in trouble with some, some other... Um, nefarious figures and uh, you know guns were involved and I got the shit kicked out of me and I was I had the opportunity then to retaliate and I saw the image of the penitentiary that I'd grown up, grown up with and I know that if I retaliate now I'm going to go to prison for life and so it was like I, I had to take the punches and all of a sudden I'm on a plane and my folks said listen you can go anywhere else in the world you want to go We'll buy you a ticket, but you can't stay here. And you got to sign a little thing for my mom, and they're in tears, and that says, you know, you can't come back to Kingston for, you know, a couple of years. And so I got on a plane, and I went to England. Never been on a plane in my life, never been on a subway. I'd, as far as ever I got out of Ontario was Montreal. And so I was 19, boom, on a plane to England. And because um, I loved the Stones, I loved the Beatles, I loved the Pistols, I loved the Clash. So I was like, London. You know, I didn't know where. And I met some great guys there. And I, I busked and I had a squat and I drank with Lemmy from Motorhead. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm starting. And my only caveat to myself and everybody else is that I am going to not pursue a life of crime that I had a, a natural kind of ability for. And so, you know, it translated beautifully into show business. Well, I was about to say that with that kind of backstory, mm -hmm. uh, the Headstones as a whole make a whole lot more sense to me now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's where, you know, these guys came up. You know, uh, the band is kind of so ancient. So I came back home 
never lived in uh, Toronto, and that was the thing. I still couldn't go back to Kingston. And all of these guys, the hip were, were, you know, I had a place down on Sherbourne over here. So the hip were starting to come to play in Toronto. And they didn't have, they were playing up at the, what is the Isabella up on Sherbourne? And they had a sax player, Paul Langlois, who I grew up playing uh, ice hockey with from the time we were eight. He, um, Dave Manning was the sax player. Right. Good, good mind. <laughs> so those guys were playing and they would come to Toronto, play at the Isabella. And so this, it's really a lot to do with the hip, how we got here. So that was, I was like, and I'd learned to write songs and play on the street in England, and I was playing covers and stuff, so I had no compunction in terms of playing my own music. And Gordy and I had always had a mutual respect, because in high school it was Dylan Downey, so we were in a lot of the same classes and in the same dramatic arts class, because our names were started with D. And... And he was really a sweetheart. And so, um, and he also always found it funny that, you know, because we'd say, what did you do all weekend? He goes, you know, I rehearsed with the band. What did you do? And I said, I scored a couple of keys in Montreal. (laughs) And then, then, Mr. Dillon, Mr. Downey, can you stop talking? And uh, that was like grade 12. Those guys didn't have anywhere to stay. So I had my little apartment. So during the day before the show, they come down, we smoke pot and we hang out. And then that night they're playing and we go and they've got a sax player. And I was like, this is, these guys are great. And, uh, and um, then, you know, they made their way and I was starting and there was some other guys and you can take over soon. There were a whole bunch of other guys in Kingston who had, or from Kingston, who had moved to Toronto. Andrew Frontini, who was in Gord's first band, uh, the Slinks, who I had done sa- uh, lights for, Randy Kwan, who wrote Cemetery with me back in the day, who was in my typing class. Grant. Grant Etche, who was in 13 Engines. He was in Gord Downey's first band, The Slinks. Uh, a bunch of other bands. Oh, uh, the guy from Copyright? Yeah, Copy, right. yeah Pete, Pete Born. Bourne, who was also in, what's the band that, Green something that used to play down at the Cameron. He's Ann Bourne's brother, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. right. So all of the, and there was, and you know, there was like painters, people from our art class, because we all took art in high school. I had a great dramatic arts teacher, we had great art teachers. And um, and so, long story short, it were all these guys, and we started a band called um, Sean Penitentiary. So it was Randy driving it, and you know, we're drinking a lot and having a lot of fun. It was still, we were 24, 25. Yeah. And Mark Gibson, and um, Andrew Frontini. And so Trent had seen the band play. Well, I was friends with Mark, and I was right. going to art school at the time. I was a slightly different background than you. <laughs> <laughs> I think most of us do. Yeah. <laughs> Where I was just like up in my room playing guitar and going to art school. And then I was friends with Mark, and we started jamming with Randy on this at this house on uh, Carlton. Oh, right, yes. Above like a glue, like the abortion bunch of glue heads. Abortion clinic. Yeah. <laughs> bunch of squatters in the basement doing glue, and we were up in the attic jamming, and one day he walks in, and Randy's like, I know this guy who can sing some songs, so... Mark and Randy and I were jamming and Hugh came in and it was just like that was cool like you know, one of those electric moments you know where it all came together and felt really good like a real band all of a sudden then these guys the Sean Penitentiary thing continued and all of a sudden I was in there being the guitar player I quit art school and, and then, trend, uh, people don't know it was originally American it's like when we first started doing yeah we were born originally but we started you know so it was that core Kingston thing and then Trent started playing with us and 
it just changed everything because I started writing the first songs with Trent because he, you know, had these riffs. And he, I think because he was an artist, it wasn't stereotypical dumb guitar rock. There was something in it that I recognized that I was able. And Tim was the same. You went to Berkeley, right? Yeah, eventually. Yeah, Berkeley yeah. and Boston? Yeah, yeah, to study bass. Yeah. And right. they had grown up together. Right. And the only, I like to tell the story because the only reason I'm a bass player is because I was, I've was i known Trent since I was really young. And one day he and his brother were going, Steve. To Steve, Steve, were going to Steve's music to get guitars. And I went along and I saw the guitars and I, I should get a guitar too. And Trent said, no, you should get a bass. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, too many guitar players. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And so I did. And then I just, because I grew up in Scarborough, which was a cultural wasteland and I didn't really have any friends beyond Trent, so I would go downtown and stay at his house for the weekend, and that would be sort of my musical rock and roll education, because we'd sit in his room, he'd play me like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd <laughs> and The Who and all these bands, and then I'd go home and play bass all week by myself and then come back and show And all of a sudden he was good. It yeah, was <laughs> suddenly, yeah. But they're great musicians, and you know, so, so just to, to your point earlier, that is the backstory. I tried to be as concise as I could. You can cut it up and edit it however you want. <laughs> But that yeah. is it. Let's stop here for a sec and play something from that first Headstones album, which was released in July of 1993. This is Cemetery. The Headstones with Cemetery from the 1993 debut album Picture of Health. We'll come back to that record in a second as we continue with part one of the Headstones in their own words. This is part one of the program where I got the Headstones to tell their own story. Let's continue with some tales from the early days. Yeah, like the first uh, Sean Penitentiary gig was like 86, I think, at uh, Ildico's on... Oh, I forgot about that! <laughs> on Blur Street. Yeah. And, wow! Because uh, I remember I was jealous because I didn't play it. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and then you used to come see us at the Silver Dollar. Yeah, yeah. And then that's I played Heart of Dark. Uh, the first time I played Heart of Darkness, yeah, and I, I was like, that "Hey, song. that song's cool." Yeah. And in '88, I think I f- first started playing with yeah you and Randy so and, and Mark. And was it yeah was it was it still called Sean Penitentiary at that point or was yeah. it yeah? And then we played the Quacte, which was violent. Let's okay. So you guys play around for four or five years, and then you end up with uh, the the Picture of Health album, yeah. which was a, a huge hit out of the gate. Yeah. Uh, who discovered you? Who signed you? Cam Carpenter. It, it, I think at first, remember it was Tony Wanamaker. The, he worked for Much Music. Yeah. And he had our demo tape for some reason. I can't remember how. And he gave yeah. it to Yvonne Matzel, yeah. who ran the uh, X-Ray and Ultrasound Club. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And then she booked us there. And then she invited like Cam Carpenter yes. and Joe Bamford. And, and we had that big party and all the managers and agents and people show yeah. up. <laughs> and it's like, let's let them see us before yeah. the midnight hour when yeah. they see the drunk and crazy go <laughs> yourself side yeah, yeah. there are two sides of the band <laughs> so this is 92 93 mm-hmm. so we're at the beginning of this this canadian rock renaissance or yeah, totally. this can rock revolution yeah and you guys along with the hip and our yeah. lady peace and i mother earth and moist and yeah. sloan you were all coming out at exactly the same time and up until that point there was Generally across the country, this feeling that Canadian music was substandard. Yes. But starting in the early 90s, 
You guys but help. to correct you, and I don't want to correct you, but to <laughs> correct you, that feeling, and first of all, that is, it isn't a correction. First of all, you are right. But I think what we had was I knew that Teenage Head wasn't substandard. It just wasn't recognized worldwide. Right. So there was something in there that even get, had my back up about people thinking Canadian music was substandard. But I've this, always had a problem with but that. But this all, all changed. And not only did people begin to support Canadian music in untold numbers, but they began to demand it. And that they began to recognize, hey, you know, Teenage Head. Hey, uh, Rush. Hey, mm, yeah. you know, Triumph. April Wine. Neil Young. Back with Turner Overdrive. Yeah, Guess BTO who? Yeah, are great. All yeah. those, all yeah. those bands. And then there's this rush to sign Canadian bands in the early 90s. I remember that. Especially after the Nirvana thing happened exactly. with uh, Sub Pop. Yeah. yeah, I remember Sub Pop came up to Toronto to watch us, yeah. to watch us play. And said no. It was. Yeah. <laughs> well, we said no. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm trying to think about this. Uh, Sons of Freedom, Gob. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. Sons of Freedom. Uh, you know, yeah. terrific bands. And then all through the 90s, you have this Can Rock thing happening where it's, it's you know, where we, we become proud Mm-hmm. And fiercely nationalistic and fiercely protective. And I think the hip were, a, were the big thing there. The, the hip unified everything. And I think that's what propelled it forward. I think so too. You know, and then we were lucky that the dovetail of the, you know, when Nirvana broke, and, and for us, we were lucky that we had enough of that raw angst, and we were, you know, some of us were alcoholics. And, uh, <laughs> Not saying who. Yeah, but we had enough of that that there was an appeal for us. It was punk. Yeah, but we were lucky again with the hip thing, because I remember when MCA and Cam Carpenter, you know, signed us at Ultrasound, they were like, yeah, is it they're a little dangerous? Yeah, but the backing of... Gord Downey and Paul Langlois, who were with MC at the time, showing up at our um, Gasworks show. At our Gasworks show, and also the Ultrasound show, the showcase, Mm -hmm. remember? Mm -hmm. And it was having the two guys in the hip as uh, fully completely was a blockbuster showing up at a headstone show and and saying, you know, we know Hugh. Uh, He grew up with us from Kingston. This was a great band, and we're here on a Tuesday night. That had just as much to do with us getting signed as our, you know, incredible talent. (laughs) (laughs) What can you tell me about that first album? Again, Platinum Out of the Gate. Was that a surprise to you, or did you... Oh, very much so a surprise, yeah. But we were totally green. We had no idea what we were doing in the studio. I remember feeling completely, like, overwhelmed in a way, and not knowing what we were doing. But we had, we had the songs that were just the songs that we had. Mm-hmm. It's that typical sort of first uh, album kind of cliche. You have your whole life to write your first record. And, you know, and then you got to write your second record in six months. So we had these old songs that were just sitting around and we had developed. And, About Cemetery, Twitter and the Monkey Man. Yeah. yeah. Something Stands well, for Nothing. And, uh, I always looked at it. Yeah, all of those songs. But I always looked at it, and I still do. And that's why I think you know the new records are, are so much better it comes down to the live style of songwriting. We wrote these songs so because we were going to play at least and we were going to play live. So the songs had, in my mind, had to stand up live. People mm-hmm. had to be able to... You could tell if they uncrossed their arms. Yeah, if they liked across. the song. Mm-hmm. And then we would work on them and we knew these were great songs and then people started coming to see us at the little bars around Toronto, Sneaky D's or the Blue Moon Saloon or <laughs> Lee's. And we're playing Cemetery. We're playing where we've got the stage act and we're and really it's just plug in and play as hard as you can 
And so I knew we had the songs. The studio was a different thing, and, I, and we were suddenly trusting all these people who, to this day, I question some of the choices. <laughs> and it was, you know, because we're starting to listen to the manager, and the managers are basically, at that time, people going, listen, trust me, we know what we're doing. And I was always ah, hesitant. And then they get a producer who I'm, so you're paying this guy this money and then write to videos, really? And nothing was ever really gelling for me. And that's why now, when we make the records, we control everything. And these records, to me, are the band. The Headstones with Tweeter and the Monkey Man, another single from that first album, that platinum debut, called Picture of Health. Let's continue. Let's go back to the second album. So um, Picture of Health was was a big success. Then you come back with, with Teeth and Tissue. Yeah. Um, and this is where things begin to get a little weird, maybe? <laughs> just just exhausting. I, I know we'd been on the road so much for that pre, that record, Picture yeah. of Health. Yeah, and we were doing it. And then after it. How many days? I was gonna say we were doing like 120 shows a year or something like that during the whole. I think we did 90s. 160 the first the first year. We how many how many shows. shows a week is that? That's like one every three days. Yeah, that was incredible. <laughs> yeah, and but that's why we've got great hardcore fans now. They remember us, and yeah. we 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 played hard. I think a lot of bands suffer from that. You have this album, it's a it's a success, you go out and you tour and you tour and you tour and all of a sudden the record company says, well, we need that second album in six months and then you write it furiously while you're on the road and then you go into the studio with songs that maybe aren't completely fully formed. Well, it's that whole second album syndrome, right? Right, right. So we just, that was just the same thing that happened to us. But what we learned out of that was that we do have some good songs here, but if we just had a little bit more time and a little bit more... Mm-hmm. You know, just breathing room. Headstones from their second album, Teeth and Tissue, which appeared in March of 1995. In a moment, we'll go deeper into, well, when things began to get scary and weird and dark. This is part one of the Headstones, in their own words, and we've reached the point where the band is up to their third album, Smile and Wave, from 1996. Okay, so we come to Smile and Wave. I got in big trouble for Smile and Wave. How <laughs> so? Um, I played an unedited version of Cubically Contained on the radio. Oh, oh yeah. yes, there was a profanity in that. Yes, there, oh, there yeah, and sorry. a very, very clear profanity. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And this was about 5.30 in the afternoon. Oh! Oh! I yeah. feel for you. Yeah, it was. And I was the program director <laughs> at the time. <laughs> so so I, uh, yourself. <laughs> I thought I was being a real rebel, but uh, there's something called the Canadian Broadcast Standards Council. And, of course, a bunch of people were listening, very concerned, you know, what about the children? Yes. So, uh... Letter writers. Yeah. F the children. Well, (laughs) (laughs) uh, that's... I I have to say that, that, you know, Smiling Way is probably my favorite Headstones record. Yes. Uh, Despite the fact that you almost got me fired. Oh, yes. I almost (laughs) got me fired because of you.
you <laughs> get lucky sometimes, yeah. and you only get lucky by continuing to do it over and over again. And we had, a, we loved that record, you know. And then you know, uh, you have some misses, but then you have things like that where you can listen to tracks that are just timeless. There's a bunch of stuff in your catalog that is timeless. Cemetery would be one. Smiling yeah. Wave would be another. I'll go with Cubically Contain again. The so- sounds, these it, songs could be released today. You still like singing. That's how that's how we can tell what still is in the set list because I, we, none of us can go up and play something we can't get behind because mm. the crowd will see it. We'll, one of the other... One of us will know that the other one doesn't want to play it. And you're just phoning it in. Yeah, and we mm-hmm. can't do that. And that's what that's what forces these new records, you know, because we need to make it count for us. Smile and Wave, the title track and a big single from the third Headstones album. Here's more from Hugh Dillon. And so it's always just keeping your eye open. So even in the cloud of drugs and alcohol, I always had that muscle memory of uh, I love rock and roll music and I love um, these guys play so beautifully because they're not trying to write hits. They are writing musical pieces that are in their subconscious and that's what I'll latch on to because they don't come up and, hey, here's a finished thing. It's usually when we're playing something else in the live situation and I'll hear them subconsciously noodle. And that's when I stop everybody and, what's that? Mm. And I isolate notes, like do-do-do-do-do-do-do, whatever he did that. I go, that is I haven't heard that before and I I am of the um, Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours because <laughs> I grew up just obsessively listening to records I was a record collector and I had crates of them and my like I said growing up I thought Bob Dylan was a relative because he had the same last name my brother was obsessed to him my brother's name is Jude and we were like Catholic family but they had my brothers and sisters had this undercurrent of Really, all that matters is rock and roll. And so I know guitar licks, I know lyrics, I know it crazily. And to hear these guys play, or Trent, you know, it's shocking because Trent and I, last week in Ottawa, we were doing some press and it was like, he'll play something. I go, that's really amazing. It's funny because I have no respect for you as my friend. But, but you do this magic trick that all of a sudden, whoever that guy, that guy I have all the respect for. Yeah, the magic trick. And it's the same with all of us. It's like we have just no respect for each other. Zero. It's just a joke. No, but... When you do the one thing you're great at, it's always shocking. Yeah, and you cool. think, that wow. guy How is, does that happen? That wow. guy is just, he is incredible. He's an incredible human being. When you see them do the one thing they're great at. <laughs> and then it's gone. Yeah. yeah. Without a sound, without a sound, without a sound. Without a sound, without a sound, without a sound. More from Smile and Wave from 1996. That's without a sound. The Headstones managed to get through three albums without anybody dying or getting killed. But the longer things went, the darker everything got. And frankly, it's amazing that the band is still here to tell these stories. We'll go through everything, and I mean everything, about that darkness and the subsequent redemption of the Headstones on part two next time. Meanwhile, you can get podcasts of this and hundreds of other ongoing history shows by going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
and basically every other podcast platform in the known universe. Subscribe and get everything for free. I have a website, a journal of musical things.com. It's updated every day and comes with a free daily newsletter. So you never miss anything. You should subscribe to that too. You can always find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and email sent to Alan at allencross.ca will be answered. See you next time for part two of the headstone story. Help from Adam when it came to recording the interview and technical production is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 